Hi and welcome to Youth Talk, a podcast run by Baptist Youth where in each episode we take a different topic and think about it from the perspective of a Christian young person. In today's episode, we're finishing the third of a three-part series thinking about assurance. How do I really know I am a Christian? Well, welcome to part three of our little mini-series asking the question, how do I know I'm really a Christian? Really wrestling with the topic of Christian assurance. Uh, thinking about the person who, who knows or is pretty convinced that the Bible is real, that Christianity is true, uh, but you're not quite sure whether or not you really are a true believer, as the Bible describes it. In the past few weeks, we've thought about, firstly, um, some truths about assurance, that, that it can be unhelpful. Largely, it is unhelpful. Sometimes it can be helpful, but ultimately, it's natural. All of us go through these seasons uh, of perhaps doubting whether or not we're truly Christians. It might be a long season, it might be a short season, but everyone goes through it, uh, even true Christians at many times in their life. Last week then, we, we thought about the most important source of our assurance, the thing that we should ultimately cling to, the thing which Greg Gilbert in his great little book describes as the accelerator in your car, and that is the gospel. That's our best, um, most reliable source of assurance as Christians, as we think about and look at the gospel. Um, but we also said last week that there are two other sources of assurance that we're going to look at in this three-part series. Again, two ones which are mentioned by Greg Gilbert in his book. And these are also important sources of assurance, but they're not quite as important as the gospel. If the gospel is like the accelerator in your car, we said these two other forms of assurance are kind of like the little speedometer in your car. Um, they're not the thing that you want to ultimately press into, but they're helpful little confirming signs. Like if your car is moving, a nice little confirming sign that your car is moving is that the speedometer moves and that little needle moves from the left to the right. And so it is as we think about these uh, final two sources of assurance. They're good confirming signs that we really are a Christian. And so there's two things that are helpful for us to think about as we wrestle with this topic. So let's look at these two things together as we close off this little mini series. Um, the second thing, first one was the gospel. The second thing, the second ground of assurance that's helpful for us is the Spirit. The Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is an important um, means for us to have confidence that we really are Christians. There's a lot of confusion as to why this might be a means or a grounds of uh, assurance for us as believers. Um, but it should be because the Bible does clearly teach, doesn't it, that once you become a Christian, you receive God's Spirit. You receive God's Spirit. God's Holy Spirit is given to you as a New Covenant Christian, a New Testament believer. The moment you become a Christian, God gives you His Spirit. And so if we know that we have and possess God's Spirit, then it follows that that is a good indicator that we really are uh, one of God's children. And there are many passages in the New Testament which would suggest that we receive God's Spirit when we become Christians. Let me rhyme off a few to you. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Romans 8, 14. Um, Galatians 4, 6. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. We don't have time to look at them all now. But they're all verses which would indicate that as Christians we have, we possess uh, God's Spirit. Um, another one that, that is perhaps key that we will read is Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, which really reminds us and shows us, I think, really clearly that the Holy Spirit is something that we receive the moment we're converted. You might have heard a lot of teaching, which is unhelpful, which says that, you know, you're converted and then you receive God's Spirit later on down the road. It's kind of like this, what some people call a, a baptism of the Spirit, which happens later on in your Christian experience. But that doesn't seem to be what Paul suggests in Ephesians 1. Let me read it to you. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Um, so when do we receive the Spirit according to Paul? He says it happens, or it happened, when you heard the truth. Okay, so receiving God's Spirit seems to be this thing which is synonymous 
uh, with your conversion. The moment that you're converted, you, uh, you receive uh, God's Spirit. And as we think about God's Spirit as a grounds of our assurance, and um, perhaps one of the reasons we struggle with this is because we live in such a feelings-based culture, don't we? And so we always think, well, well, maybe God's Spirit's living inside of me, but I don't really feel it. And because we're, we're, we're probably aware of all these kind of random suggestions or ideas as to what it means to experience the Holy Spirit. And so we've heard people say ridiculous things like, you know, you don't have the Spirit if you don't speak in tongues, or you don't have the Spirit if you don't do this crazy thing that you perhaps see on YouTube or on the TV. And that's all really unhelpful as you think about the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's not the things that we should be looking for as evidence of the Holy Spirit. And uh, there are a number of things that we can kind of remember or should remember as we think about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives as believers and then how we should then respond or use that as a, a grounds of having confidence that we really are believers. I suppose the first thing that the, the, the Holy Spirit does is he convicts us of sin, doesn't he? He convicts us of sin. And so I think this is the first thing that we, we should remember um, as we think about the Holy Spirit as a grounds of assurance. Firstly, I think we should rejoice whenever we feel that internal tension or that internal conviction of sin, shouldn't we? Sometimes, as we said in, in weeks gone by, sin is the thing which makes us lack assurance. We're very aware of our sin. But let me flip that for you slightly and say that the fact that you do feel that conviction, you feel that, that tension, that's actually a very good sign, isn't it? Because it's the Spirit's job to, in, in your heart, to convict you of sin, to, to make you aware of your sin, and to bring you to a position whereby you want to repent from that sin or turn from that sin. And so we should firstly rejoice if we feel attention, if we feel, oh, I, I've sinned in this way, I've let God down, I've disobeyed him. Um, if you feel broken about that to any degree, that's a good sign, isn't it? Even the Apostle Paul felt this. Um, Galatians chapter 5 seems to talk about how the spirit and the flesh are always at war with each other. So if you're a true believer, there is this internal war that's battling and raging in your heart. Paul himself at the end of Romans chapter 7 there is some debate as to whether or not Paul's describing his experience as a Christian. Um, but if he is, which is a real possibility, Paul talks in, in Romans 7 at the end of it about how he always finds himself doing things that he wish he didn't do. He always finds himself not doing the things he wish he did do. In other words, Paul's speaking very honestly about the, oh, his own internal battle and struggle with sin. And because this is the tension which always should really rage in, in the hearts of believers. And so if you uh, feel conviction of sin, if you feel the weight of sin, you should rejoice. That that's good evidence that the Spirit is at work in your heart. It's one of the Spirit's jobs in your life as a believer to convict you of sin. So that's the first thing we should remember. Rejoice that you feel the inner tension. If you're someone who just sins recklessly and doesn't care, doesn't give a toss, that's a concern. But if you're someone who says, I feel the weight of my sin, that's actually a good sign. It might sound counterintuitive, but it's actually the reality of what the Bible teaches us. Second thing then, as we think about the, the Holy Spirit, um, Ask God to increase your understanding experientially of what you know to be true doctrinally, okay? Let me repeat that because it was a wee bit wordy. Ask God to increase your understanding experientially of what you know to be true doctrinally. So you know as Christians, don't you, that you have God's Spirit. You know the simple truths of the gospel. You know what the Spirit has done in your life in bringing you to Jesus Christ. Um, but we don't want those just to be facts in our minds. Quite often they are. But it is good that we pray to God that he would help us to become more aware of this, that he would help us to, to know this, not just in, in our minds, but in our hearts. And that's not a bad thing to pray, that God would make you aware of his presence and aware of his love through his spirit. In fact, it's something that, that Paul actually prays for the Ephesians. 
He says this in Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. He says, what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge? He says, I pray that the Ephesians will experience this. So pray that God would help you to experience in your heart and what you know to be true in your mind. That's the second thing that we should say as it relates to the Spirit. And then the third thing, which is really, really important, as you think about God's Spirit, one of the best ways you, you can see God's Spirit at work in your life is by reading God's Word. Reading God's Word. Uh, the Spirit is not some random being who is altogether detached from the Bible. It's not like the Bible is a stiff and starchy book and the Spirit's this kind of a random, spontaneous presence that's out and about somewhere. No, the Word of God is literally inspired by God's Spirit. And so if we want to really know the effects of God's Spirit in our hearts and in our minds, the best thing we can do is to read God's Word and to meditate on it day in, day out. So we can't detach the two. Um, we want to have God's Spirit move in our hearts and in our minds. And the primary way that happens is through through the Word. So there's some comments on the, the Holy Spirit, which is the second I suppose, means of assurance that we can cling to as believers. Firstly, we want to press into the gospel. Secondly, a confirming sign that the gospel has taken root in our life is the work of the Spirit. Thirdly then, and finally then, uh, we have the topic of obedience. Obedience. Obedience is a means through which we can have confidence that we really are uh, one of God's children. And that this is the one where we all probably get a little bit edgy, don't we? Because we always think, well, I have certain sins that I struggle with. And um, you, you perhaps think about books in the Bible which talk about obedience and how it is a means of having confidence that you really are one of God's children. And particularly the book that comes to mind is probably the short little book of 1 John in the New Testament. And um, as you think about 1 John, again, I'm, I'm referencing this book a lot, but it's really helpful, so I'd encourage you to read it. Greg Gilbert's little book on assurance, he, he talks about how he was surprised whenever he was going to preach through 1 John with his congregation because he said that they all responded with this real fear and this real anxiety because they all thought, oh, we're, we're really going to doubt that we're really Christians. And uh, he said that's quite ironic, and we'll see why that's ironic in a few moments. But let me just kind of run you through a few of the things that we, we see in the book of 1 John, which perhaps causes people a little bit of discomfort as Christians and causes them to doubt. Uh, 1 John, typically, we're told that John really applies three tests to his hearers, tests that they're to apply to their own hearts, to determine whether they really are of the faith. Uh, the first test is the ethical test, the moral test. Um, that is pretty much, do you live in obedience with God's word? Um, and he says, for example, John in, in chapter two, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. Okay, so that's the first one, the, the ethical test, the obedience test, if you will. John says, if you love the things of the world and not the things of, of God, you're not of God. You're not a true follower. The second test then he applies after this kind of ethical test is the doctrinal test, okay? Um, you can read about this in, in chapter two, verses 22 to 25. We'll not read it now for the sake of time, but, but John's effectively saying, if you believe that Jesus Christ really is the son of God and you can tick those key doctrine boxes, um, that's a good sign that you really are a Christian, but if you can't, you're not. You're not a Christian, okay? And then the third test that he applies is the relational test. Again, I'll not read it for the sake of time, but you can look up chapter 3, verse 21 to 23. And John's effectively saying here, if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's fruit, that's evidence that you really are a Christian. But if you don't love them, again, that's not a good sign because true believers love their fellow believers. True believers love their brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. Now, let's be honest, as we think about those three tests 
that John encourages us, he urges to apply to his, their own hearts, we probably all walk away from that thinking, oh, I'm not really sure that I'm a Christian. Uh, and the reason we all think of that is because those things kind of, we, we're all very aware that we fall desperately short in all those things. You know, as we think about that first test, the, the, the ethical test or the moral test or the obedience test, whatever you want to brand it, we're all very aware of our own sinfulness. As you think about the doctrinal test, you might think, well, maybe I've got that one sorted. Uh, maybe not, maybe there's a few things I'm unsure about. Thirdly, you think about the, the, the relational test. Do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? We think, oh, well, there's plenty of people that I don't really love the way that I should. And we feel really, really burdened as we read those passages because we think I fall desperately short. But let's remember three things, okay, as we think about these. Um, again, three questions that, that Greg Gilbert asks and, and considers as he thinks about one John. Here's the first one. Um, let's remember John's overarching purpose, okay? Um, it's quite ironic that we read one John uh, with fear and trembling because in actual fact, that's the opposite reason that John actually writes the book. John doesn't write the book of one John so that his hearers would fear and tremble as to whether or not they really are Christians. John writes actually two Christians, if you read chapter 5, verse 13. Who does John say he's speaking to? He's speaking to genuine Christians. He wants to assure them. He wants to give them confidence that they really are Christians. He's writing to Christians who perhaps like you were shaking in their boots and were thinking, are we really the real deal? Are we really Christians? Are we really true believers? Have we been deceived this whole time? And Paul actually write, or sorry, John actually writes to give them confidence that they are, that they are. And so he doesn't apply these tests so that his listeners would go, oh my goodness, that, that doesn't describe me, or that doesn't describe me, and that doesn't describe me. He writes these tests to further give them confidence that it does describe them, okay? So John's not writing to trip you up. John's not writing to say, ha-ha, gotcha. No, John's writing to provide confidence to true believers. Let's remember John's overarching purpose, okay? That's the first thing we should say. Second thing, though, is let's remember the context of the churches to whom John is writing. John is writing to these churches who have got a lot of crazy stuff going on. <laughs> and they've had members who've got up and walked out because they have embraced radically false teaching, teaching which denies the deity of the Lord Jesus, that he's not really God, teaching which was Gnostic, which really said that, that your body and your soul were separate, which pretty much means you can do whatever you want with your body. You can be as sexually liberal as you want with your body, and that's all fine and in line with God's word. There was some real depraved, uh, heinous sins going on in the church to whom John is writing. And so that's the context. It's again, very, very important to remember as we think about some of these tests, for want of a better word, that John encourages his, his believers to, to listen to. And so when he, he says about the obedience test, for example, um, he's talking and probably has in mind some of these very, very heavy, weighty, uh, significant issues that are going on in the churches to whom he writes. And then the third thing, uh, and this is, I think, very key as we think about these passages, that we read of, particularly in 1 John, is that we must remember the actual questions that John is asking, okay? Um, because we, we tend to kind of shift the question a little bit, don't we? And, and the reason we shift it is because we add a, a word that actually changes the, the question that John's asking. If you actually look at the questions that John ask, is asking, Greg Gilbert says, the irony is they're actually such basic questions, aren't they? They're such simple questions. They're such easy questions to answer for anyone who's a Christian. Do you, do, do you love God? Do you actually love him? Do you, do you try and live out the teaching of the Bible? Yes, and perfectly, but do you try? The, the answer, the, the assumed answer is there, well, yeah, I do. Um, do you believe that Jesus is, you know, secondly, the, the Son of God, that he really is God who came to this earth to die for our sins? Do you, do you believe that? Well, yeah, I do. Good, that's another tick. Thirdly, 
when it comes to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you love them? Do you care for them? Like, isn't it true that there's some affection for your fellow church members? Doesn't that exist within you? Again, it's just a simple question of which the implied answer, particularly to those whom John is writing, is, well, yes, I do. I do have some affection, imperfectly, of course, but, but I do have some affection for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, so John is asking actually these really simple questions with the implied answer of, Yes, because he wants them to be basic questions which give confidence to his listeners that they really are the real deal. But what do we do when we read these questions? We add the word enough, don't we? Enough, that's the question. We change the question by adding the word enough. We say things like, and ask questions like, well, do I obey God enough? Do I fight sin enough? Do I love God enough? Do I love my brothers and sisters enough and then your mind always goes to the the one person in your church you can't stand we add that little word enough and we always come to the same conclusion which is well no and then we become really downcast and say well i failed all the tests that john is asking me to apply to my life but that's not the question that john's asking john acknowledges that we're all imperfect we're all sinners we all fall short but he wants to encourage you to say isn't it true that this stuff exists in your life that there's an affection for god a desire to live in line with his word an affirmation of the true key doctrines of the faith, and thirdly, a a love and affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that true that that exists in your heart? And okay, if you're you're listening to this and thinking, well, none of that's remotely true, then perhaps there's grounds to be concerned and and you should speak to someone, maybe a pastor or an elder, and you should ultimately press into that first thing that we said last week, the gospel. But I'd imagine for many people watching this who struggle with assurance, um, actually those things are, positive and they do exist in your life to which John wants to say then be encouraged you really are of the faith and you should then press on in the Christian life pursuing holiness and sanctification uh, freed up liberated to serve others and so in conclusion as we think about those three grounds of assurance the gospel which is the primary one the spirit which is the second one and then obedience which is the third one how can we kind of tie all this up in the last uh, few minutes as we think about as we think about Assurance. Here's perhaps three summarizing statements, um, which aren't great, but hopefully they'll get us on the right page as we think about um, assurance. Here's the first one. Look up, not in. Look up, not in. In other words, what is our primary source of assurance? It can only be found when we look up, when we look to God. Don't look in. Of course, some introspection is helpful and self-examination is helpful, but ultimately, as we said a few weeks ago, for every one look we take at ourselves, we take 10 looks at Christ, We want to ultimately look up, not in, fix our eyes on Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And the more we do that, the more we'll find ourselves assured and having confidence in our salvation. So that's the first thing. Look up, not in. Secondly, think clear, not abstract. Think clear, not abstract. What I mean by that, well, particularly as we think about some of those tests that John applies, um, think about the overarching clear message of the Bible and what the gospel really is. It really is not some sort of hidden code that we have to try and unpack and figure out. No, the gospel is a simple message that we do a very good job of overcomplicating at times. Of course, the implications of the gospel are endless, but at its heart, the gospel is a simple message. It's so simple a child can understand it. It's so available that a murderer like Paul could receive it. It's so immediate that a thief on the cross in his dying breath could also receive it in his last moments. This is the beautiful, simple gospel that we believe in. And so think clear, not abstract, okay? And don't run yourself in circles, trying to dodge in and out of some 
difficult texts by somehow just all of a sudden neglecting the clear, obvious, simple teaching of the Bible and the simple truths of the gospel, okay? So look up, not in. Think clear, not abstract. Uh, not abstract. And then finally, uh, remember grace, not guilt. <laughs> remember grace, not guilt. Um, again, we're, we're very good, are we, as Christians, particularly evangelical Christians in our part of the world, uh, at being very, very negative in our view of what God is like because we, we realize the reality of sin and we, we perhaps respond to more liberal strands of Christianity who try to neglect sin and God's judgment. Um, and we want to say that God is someone who judges sin and deals harshly with sin because sin is serious before God's sight. But in doing that, we, we somehow have this tainted view about how God views us as his people. We always kind of view God as standing in heaven, a bit suspicious of us, you know, folding his arms, tapping his foot, waiting for us to mess up. But we must remember that's not God's disposition towards his people. And God delights in lavishing grace towards his people. And the lie that Satan would love you to believe is that God is some harsh taskmaster sitting in heaven waiting for you to blow it. Uh, it's the lie that he told right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 that, that Adam and Eve, as soon as they sin against God, they run, they hide. They believe that God was fundamentally a, a cosmic killjoy. He, he wanted to spoil their joy and spoil their happiness and ruin all their fun. It's the lie that Satan dishes out time and time and time again. It's the lie that he uses to us as God's people to alienate ourselves from this God. Um, but we want to remember that our God is fundamentally a God of grace. A God of grace. Yes, he's a God of judgment. He will rightly bring the world to justice. But for us as his people, he has dealt finally and definitely and comprehensively with our sin in the gospel. And so we can have hope and can cling to that. So those are three things to remember as we think about uh, this topic and wrap up this little mini-series on assurance. Look up, not in. Think clear, not abstract. Remember grace, not guilt. Hopefully that's been helpful. Uh, thank you for joining us for this uh, last episode of uh, this little uh, series on assurance and youth talk. And we're going to be back again next week with a brand new topic. If there are any topics you would like us to cover, um, send us a little message on the Baptist Youth Instagram or Facebook page. Uh, we'd love to hear any topics that you'd love to be covered in this uh, series of uh, podcasts. Have a great week and hope to see you again soon.